Hey guys, good morning. You feeling good? Man, I, I am too. I want to ask you to do something for me. Just as a way of saying thank you for the lives that he's changed. We, we of course, you saw the baptism here earlier. We baptized, I think, eight, seven or eight people today. Just as a way of thanking him for what he's doing in our church and in the lives of people in our community, would you just give the Lord a big hand? We have a lot of momentum right now, and the Lord is really working in our church, and I'm just grateful to it, uh, grateful for it. So um, I also want to say thank you for being here today. I, I found myself doing this morning like I've done pretty much every Sunday morning for the last 18 years, and we're celebrating our 18th birthday, 18th anniversary today. Um, but what I do every, every Sunday is I go to the nearest window where I can see the parking lot, and I look to see if anybody showed up. And so I'm always honored that you do, uh, whether you're a longtime member or a regular attender or a first-time guest today. Really, I'm glad that you guys are here let me uh, start this morning by asking you a question. It's, it's not profound, but it's, it's a pretty important question. Have you ever noticed that it's easier to start things than it is to finish them? Have you noticed this? Like, like a diet. It's easier to start a diet than it is to follow it all the way through and, and reach your, your weight goal. You, you've noticed this, right? You were giggling when I first said it, but now I'm talking about diet, and you're like, hey, just get to the Bible now, leave us alone with the diet stuff. Yeah, it's easier to sign up for things than it is to show up for the responsibility, right? Uh, that, that came home to roost with me yesterday morning. Uh, one day last week, Nick, Brown, Nick and Heidi Brown are uh, leading the, uh, the pumpkin patch, and Nick was in my office. We were just talking about some things. I asked him how the pumpkin patch is going, how's coverage, got plenty of volunteers. He said, well, I have these two slots. And one of them was 8 o'clock on Saturday morning. That's normally not a big deal for me. I'm usually up by 5. I put my name down for, for, the, uh, for that spot. Well, then my parents came into town. And so I went out to eat with them Friday night. They're staying over at a hotel near Concord Mills. I went over to their hotel room, stayed till about 1 o'clock. When I finally got home and got unwound enough to go to sleep, it was like 2.30. And then when the alarm clock went off at 7, like three and a half hours later, I'm thinking, Lord, why did I show up? Or why did I sign up for this? Do I really have to go? And, and, and it was cloudy outside, so I looked at my phone to see what the weather was like. Lord, please let it be raining. We just won't open that thing this morning. But sun was kind of cracking through, and I had to get out here. But it's easy to sign up for things. It's not so easy to show up for them. It's easy to make wedding vows, isn't it? Make, make wedding vows... Making them is one thing, keeping them, though, that, that's quite another. Anybody that's uh, been married longer than, say, a month that just wants to say amen right there? Oh, yeah. Um, raising kids. Raising kids. It's easier to have them than it is to raise them. Having them is one thing. It seems glamorous. You have that mommy glow when you're pregnant and then when the baby's born. Then after a while, that mommy glow, that daddy glow, it just fades. It, it becomes tough. Lots of things are like that in life. Starting this church has been the same way. If I'm being completely honest with you, 
some of the, the, some of the best friends I've ever had, people in this church. Um, some of the best memories of my life have to do with things in this church. And some of my greatest hurts are also things that have to do with this church through, through the years. You know, it, and it's been, it's been difficult. You know, it's easy to start the church. I won't say it's easy. It wasn't really easy, but it was easier to start it than it has been to stay with it through the years and to keep going. I was uh, making some notes this week in a leadership journal that I, that I keep, some articles that I write from time to time, and I was just trying to jot down some of the leadership lessons I've learned over the 18 years, the past 18 years. And one of the things I wrote down is that it takes determination. You know, for the past few weeks, we've been in a series called Greater Faith. We're talking about how to grow our faith stronger. So we've talked about a stronger faith. We've talked about a trusting faith, a giving faith, an obedient faith, those kind of things. But I realized this week that it takes more than skill. It takes more than ability. It takes even more than faith. It takes a determined faith to follow through on the things that God has given you to do. And that's the same with the church. It's the same with the marriage. It's the same with raising kids, starting a business, you, you name it. It takes faith, but it takes a determined faith. That's my message today, a determined faith. And I know for the last several weeks, we've been looking through the book of uh, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 11. We've been looking at the heroes of faith as we find them there, again, to grow our own faith in God. But today, I'm going to step out of Hebrews, and I'm going to go into the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 4. Now, I pulled a fast one on the, the audio video guys this week. So the scripture passage is not going to be on the screen and you don't have it in your notes. You have to listen to me read it. And uh, maybe that'll be more exciting than it sounds. But I'm going to read through Nehemiah chapter 4. And I want you to just listen through the dialogue. We're going to unpack it. And then I'm going to show you three things from the book of Nehemiah that made those people want to quit on an important project. They're the same three things that want, make us want to give up. And quit. And what Nehemiah did to encourage the people to keep going. How many of you have heard of Nehemiah before? Just a show of hands. You've at least heard of Nehemiah? Okay, that's a lot of you guys. Now, just to make sure that we're all on the same page, I want to give you a little bit of the backstory of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a great example, maybe the best example of a determined leader. And he had a vision, a vision that God gave him. You know, he didn't just dream this up one day on his own. It's a vision, a dream that God gave him to go back to Israel to rebuild the city walls and the gates. Now, Nehemiah is a great leader. In fact, I would say he's, he's not only one of the greatest leaders in the Bible, he's one of the greatest leaders of all time, anywhere. If you're a business leader, a leader of any kind, business leader, coach, whatever, you should go and read the book of Nehemiah again and again and again. Even before you read anything by Jim Collins, you ought to read Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a leader of people, and that's not easy to do. It's a, it's a great book. Okay, here, here's the backstory. In 586 B.C., what year? 
586 B.C. The Babylonians, led by Nebuchadnezzar, destroyed the nation of Israel. They took most of the people with them to Babylon, although some of the people stayed behind. But the people who were taken captives lived in Babylon for nearly a hundred years. Well, eventually, the Persians came along and destroyed the Babylonians. Those of you who love history, man, you're just sitting there going, keep going, preacher. I'm with you. Those of you who hate dates and names like Artaxerxes, you're like, oh, my God, hurry through this. I'll get there. The Persians came along led by Cyrus the Great, and they destroyed the Babylonians and took over, became the number one superpower in the world. Eventually, a man named Artaxerxes became the king in Persia. And he decided at some point that he was going to set the captives free. He was going to let them go back to Israel. And not only did he let them go back to Israel, he gave them permission to rebuild the city walls and gates. Now, when we hear that, we think, eh, big deal, city walls, gates. Because when we think of that, we think of a gated community. And if you don't live in a gated community, it doesn't seem like a big deal For them, a gated community meant safety and security. Without the gates, without the fence, without this wall, they were susceptible to any enemy that just wanted to come in and harm them. Well, not only did he give them permission to rebuild the city walls and the gates, he gave them some timber from his royal forest. I mean the forest where they go get the king's trees to add on to his palace or build furniture, whatever. He gave them the timber. And he sent army officers back with them. And he sent a cavalry. And he gave them official letters so that when they crossed from border to border, and uh, a tribe of people or another nation's army would come out and try to stop them or harm them, Nehemiah could say, you see this document? This is my rite of passage. You notice this mule I'm on? This is Persian gear on him. And we've got permission to come through here. That means if you mess with Nehemiah and the people who are going back to rebuild the wall, you're messing with Artaxerxes and the nation of Persia. As I've already said, Nehemiah was the man chosen to go back and do the project. And when the project started, man, people were going like gangbusters. They were excited about it. Nehemiah, again, he's a good vision. He, he painted a, a compelling vision, a clear vision for why they should rebuild the city walls because the city of God, Zion, Jerusalem, Lies in disgrace. And so the people, as they say in poker, were all in, excited. But at some point, about halfway, they got discouraged and wanted to quit. And we can relate to that, can't we? Because you've had some project and, and it's worthwhile. You're all about it. You're excited about getting it done. And then you get started. But at some point, you just... You want to quit? You wish you'd never even started? Like cleaning out your garage. You set aside a Saturday for it? You're going to get it done. 
So you start that morning, you pull everything out, you, you, you put everything on your driveway, on your lawn, your neighbor's lawn, you got everything out, you, you, you sweep out the garage, maybe even hose it down because you're excited. This thing's clean, it's concrete floors, like masonry walls, this is great. And you have this vision of what it's going to be like to actually park a car in there. You get everything sort of sorted out. You throw some stuff away, but at a point you look at everything. And you're like, I still have to organize this and put it all back in. What was I thinking? I I should have just never started this mess. You just want to quit. Ever been there? That's me. But some of you feel like that way, not just with your garage, but you feel that way with your marriage. You've been at it for a while, um, but it's gotten tough. Maybe you've been at it for a decade, and there are times when you sit back and wonder, why did I even get involved with this? Why, why did I get married? I should have just learned how to cook. Well, those kids, they were fine at two and three. You didn't go through the terrible twos, but now the 13 and 14, and you're ready to choke them out. You're like, what, what were we thinking? We were happy. We had money. We had our sanity. Now we got teenagers. All that's gone. You just want to quit. Well, in this story, there are specific things that make the people want to quit on their important project. I'll point those out at the end. And then I'll tell you what Nehemiah led them to do so that they wouldn't quit. So they could keep going. So let's, uh, let's read this. I'll unpack it as we go and then quickly come back and give you some takeaways, some things that you need to remember. All right. Everybody still with me? Say amen. All right. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is Nehemiah talking, by the way. It's, the book's named after him. He's the historian. He's writing it down. When Sanballat, kind of an interesting name, when Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. Wow, there's this reality that sets in when you start on something that's great for God. You think that everybody's going to be excited about it, and then you find out one day that everybody's not excited about it. Like when we started Rocky River Church. I thought when we started 18 years ago that everybody was going to be so excited. I would have different people calling for us from other churches. What can we do? How can we help? How can we pray? Uh-uh. I thought everybody would be on the sidelines cheering, but it didn't work out that way. When, whenever you step out in faith to do something great for the Lord, there's always going to be somebody that doesn't like it. But it goes on. He ridiculed the Jews. These children of Israel, they're, they're Jews. And in the presence of his associates. Now, This is the New International Version. And the guys who are translating, or the guys and gals that are translating this day, they must have been in a really good mood because they they refer to the people who are hanging out with Sanballat as associates. These are thugs, criminals, murderers, rapists. They are horrible people. 
So we're not talking about nice people that are gathered against them. We're talking about mean and nasty people. And he said in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, the same Samaria we see on the news today, all these soldiers are around. And he said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? He said, and he's looking at them and he's not thinking these are the captives that have been set free. They're, they're no longer slaves. These enemies of the Jews, they look at them and all they see is slaves. So they're ridiculing them. Uh, here, here they come. They think they're gonna come back and rebuild the wall. Other people have thought they would rebuild it as well. And they didn't succeed and these people are not gonna succeed. What do they think they're gonna do? Offer sacrifices to their God? They had no place to offer sacrifices because Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians tore the temple down 100 plus years ago. What are they going to do? Rebuild the wall and rebuild the tabernacle? Rebuild the temple? Not going to happen. So they're sitting on the sidelines, poking fun at them. If you decide to step out in faith and do something great for the Lord, something he's put on your heart, you can expect opposition. You can expect the naysayers to be sitting on the sidelines going, you, you can't do that. You, you want to start What? See, now there's a church kind of on every corner. There's new churches popping up all the time. But when we started Rocky River Church, there was West Cabarrus Church. They were a fairly new church. Mecklenburg Community Church, they, they were pretty new. But that's kind of it. And, and there was opposition. So there, there are people looking at you or, or talking to you. I don't, I don't know how many people I ran into in those early days. They're like, you're going to start a church that looks like What? A real church for real people? What does that even mean? You're going to start a church for people who have never been to church or people who have given up on church as usual? Come on. This is what church is supposed to look like, and then they give you their template. There's always going to be somebody that's ridiculing whatever you're doing for the Lord. Remember Noah? Noah built an ark, a boat. All the people around him, they ridiculed him. He was hundreds of miles away from a body of water that it would, it would even float a boat that big. He said, it's going to rain. Rain, what's rain? It had never rained on the earth before. They ridiculed him until it started raining. Verse 3, Tobiah the Ammonite, he's one of the associates, who was at his side, he said, what are they building even a fox climbing up on it would break down their small stones. <sighs> Even what they build is not going to be worth having. Even the wall they build, even if they build it to its normal height, if a small animal was to walk around it, <sighs> it would fall in. They're not going to be able to build security. They're not going to be able to feel safe inside of that place. Opposition. Then in verses 4 and 5, we see that Nehemiah is not only a great leader, he's a godly man, but he's a real man with real feelings. He said, hear us, our God, for we are despised. The people around us, they, they hate us. Turn their insults back on their heads. Give them over as plunder in the land of captivity. Make them slaves. They're picking on us for being slaves. Make them slaves. Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. 
you have to remember that this was a time before the cross. Jesus hadn't been on earth yet. What Nehemiah's crying out for was justice. And he's saying, Lord, do to them what they've done to us. And I understand that. Do you? You ever had somebody hurl insults at you or talk about you and you, you, you want to just answer them back? And you, I, I've done that. Man, I'm, I can be really sarcastic. I can, I'm a good smack talker. I'd be careful of it. I, I had a Nehemiah moment Thursday night at Bank of America Stadium. I had a row full of Philadelphia Eagle fans behind me. And we were neck and neck till about halftime. Panthers come out in the third quarter, turn it over, touchdown right off the bat for the Eagles, and they never let up. And at the end of the game, you know, they're, you know, they had polite things to say and all that, but shaking their hand, well, that's one of the hardest things I've had to do in a while. Because I was really saying, Lord, kill these guys behind me. Just smoke them down. Just make a, a greasy spot out of them right here. Le leave the jersey on them so everybody knows what happens. Yeah, that's all right. I knew you were sitting back there. And I got, I, I, I got something for your mind. See what I mean? Hang on a minute, Colleen. I need to pray. Dear Lord. But he's crying out for justice. Look at verse 6. Things turned just a little bit. So we rebuilt the wall till all of it reached half its height. For the people worked with all their heart. So they're halfway. They're, they're at the, mid, the midway point, And people are still working with all their heart. At least up to this point. And then things begin to, churn, uh, to turn again. Verse 7. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and the Arabs, the Ammonites. There are more people now, aren't there? Early it was Sambalay and uh, Tobiah. But now it's Sambalay, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod. The, these are the people that have the city surrounded. When they heard that the repairs of Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were angry. Verse 8, they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. So now they're not, they're not only ridiculing them. They have a plan to divide them. To, to put an end to their, their building program. And uh, over the years, I've seen this happen to the people of God again and again and again and again and again. You know, when we think about problems in a church... Usually our minds, we, we think about some pastor that was involved in a sex scandal. Or we think about um, a pastor or a ministry leader, a, an evangelist that had a problem with money. And those are, those are bad. Those are terrible things. There's no excuse for that. But let me tell you something. Many, 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 many more churches have been destroyed. Not because of an affair by the preacher or mishandling of the money in church but because the devil was able to get a foothold inside of the church and start working and divide the people yeah there's some preachers one day that are going to answer for the things that they've done in the church 
But there are a lot of people that walk in and out of a church every Sunday morning and they think everything's okay with them. And one day they're going to have to answer for the turmoil and the hurt and the bitterness that they've caused. And the people they have turned away from the church, they'll never go back again because of the way someone treated them in church. I know. The meanest woman I've ever known was the wife of uh, the chairman of the deacons. Let's stop the work. Satan's after us, but he's not very creative. He uses the same thing on you over and over again to put a stop to what God's doing in your life. He does the same thing in churches. Just cause some division. Get them to fight over the cemetery fund. Get them to start arguing over nothing. Get them talking about translations of the Bible. Before you know it, they won't like each other. They won't hang out with each other. And people start to splinter off one by one. Verse 10 says, meanwhile, the people in Judah, they said, the strength of the laborers is giving out and there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. They're at the halfway point. They've been going with all their heart, but now they want to stop. They want to quit. There's so much rubble, so much debris. Anybody here work in construction? Your contractor or you or a, a tradesperson. On a side, I, I learned this when we were building this building here. In the beginning, everything just goes great. Everything's going fast. Um, usually, when it's the, the the grading company, they're out there. They're they're just cutting everything in. But eventually, eventually, they get to a certain point where uh, they're they're ready to start pouring concrete. But before they pour concrete, the electricians have to come in and the plumbers have to come in to run conduit where they're going to pour concrete. So now you've got more trucks, more guys, more workers out there. And then after a while, you know, toward the end of the project, you still have some of the grading guys out there, but then you have landscapers. You have concrete finishers. They're trying to put in sidewalks. You've got the electricians out there, the plumber, the drywall people, the, planer, the, the painters. You got decorators inside. You got more engineers and architects now on the job than than you can shake a stick at. And there are piles of debris everywhere. Because you got all these tradespeople. You got drywall and brick and mortar chunks and sawdust and all that sort of stuff. That's what's happening on this project here. They've gotten to a certain point and they've had to break blocks and they've had to cut brick and cut stone. There's pieces of mortar, Gatorade bottles everywhere, and they just see how far they've got to go, and they're ready to quit. Then to make things worse, he says in verse 11, also our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we'll be right there among them, and we'll kill them and put an end to their work. They're not just ridiculing now. They're not just talking about stopping the work now. They want to they kill these people. Let me tell you, if you step out in faith and attempt to do something great for God, that's when all hell will break loose on you. Husband, when you, when you make the decision that you're going to stay home, because maybe you're thinking about leaving, you're like, I, I deserve to be happy. 
and other kids come from a broken home, mine will be okay too, and you've got an exit plan, if you decide today that you're going to stay home, all hell's going to break loose on you. You can just, you can get ready for it. It's going to happen. The same with the wife. The same with going back to school. I mean, Satan will just come at you. Verse 12, then the Jews who live near them. Now, these are Jews. The people rebuilding the walls, they're Jews. But this is a different group of Jews, probably a group of people who are not doing the work. These are the people that opted out. Because you've got to know that everybody in Jerusalem is not working on the wall. There's a group of people who are not working on the wall. And they are saying to Nehemiah and the people, before they... uh, Then then the Jews who lived near them came and told us ten times over, not just once, ten times over, wherever you turn, they'll be here to attack us. So see, they're looking from some vantage point where they see the work going on, and they can look out here and see the enemies. And they're saying, "I, I know what you guys are trying to do with the wall and everything, but there's enemies at every gate. There's no way out. They're going to attack. They're going to attack. These are the naysayers. When you're trying to do something for the Lord, when you start building that marriage, when you get serious about working on it, when you get serious about being clean, that's when the people who will come out, they're not satisfied with their lives. They've got unfinished projects in their lives, and the last thing they need is for you to finish something you've started. So they want to list all the reasons why it won't work. They want to tell you everything that could possibly happen. And before you know it, they they come up with a a list of what-ifs that's so long that you start thinking, maybe this is impossible. Anybody here like Disney? Disney World? Four of us, that's it? Okay, a few of us. When, When Walt Disney was building Disney World, you know, he's a very creative guy. And they noticed that as the project went along, he became more and more depressed. So they were trying to figure out why. What they realized is that he, he's this creative guy. And he would, he would come out of his living quarters, you know, there on, on the site. And he would say, guys, I have a great idea. Let's do this. Well, he had a dozen architects and insurance people that would line up and say, we can't do, the liability's too great, or we can't do this because there's too much to be done, or it would cost a fortune. The people who were working on the budget, and they had a very little budget. Anybody can relate to that? Oh, yeah. They had a little budget, and, and he's listening to all the, all the reasons that they can't do it. So here's the way they started dealing with Walt. They started saying, okay, we can do what you're wanting to do. And we also have to do this. Like the jungle ride, the jungle cruise. Anybody ever been on that? Walt's idea was that those would be real animals. So when he comes out one day and he's got this idea, hey, uh, I want to do this jungle ride and I want to use real animals. Leanne, the insurance person, came over and said, okay, we can do that. But listen, there's a liability issue here. We got to protect the people from the crocodiles. And, and, and then other people would say, yes, we can do that. We can have elephants here. 
and we have to have zookeepers, and we have to have special lodging for them at night, and we have to figure out how to keep them away from everything else that's going on in Florida. And so eventually he said, hey, how about if we make mechanical animals and animatronics were invented? But he put in his journal that one day he wanted to have an animal kingdom. So the seed for that future dream and vision had been planted. Listen, if you're a dreamer, if you're a visionary type person, that's what I am. You have to surround yourself with people that will bring realism to what you're trying to do, but not so much that they stifle the vision that God's put in you. You also have to have people around you that cheer you and say, absolutely, man, we can do that. We, we can do that. We can make that happen. You just have to have it. Therefore, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall, all the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. What he does is he stops the work. He says, hang, hang, hang on, Every, we're tired, we're afraid, we're frustrated. Let's just stop right here. Verse 14 says, after I looked things over, he's a looked things over kind of guy. He looked things over And he came up with a new plan. He said, here's what we're going to do. I stood up and said to the nobles, that means the leaders, the officials, probably military type folks, and the rest of the people, not only the Jews, but the enemies around them that can hear. He said, I I addressed all of them. And I said, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of them. He's having a brave heart moment. I kind of imagine uh, Nehemiah like William Wallace. He says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, fight for your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. He's saying, remember why we started this project. A few weeks ago when we got here, the city walls were in rubble. There were no gates. And the city lie in disgrace. And these these pagan Ammonites, Moabites, Gingivites, and all those tooth decay kind of diseases, they're, they're coming in here and they're stealing our children and selling them into slavery. Raping our women so that they can have Ammonite babies. We're not protected. We've got to have this wall so that we'll be safe and secure. Remember why we started this. I'll tell you, I've had to remember through the years why we started. You think you ever wanted to walk out and go find another church? I also have wanted to walk out and go find another congregation. Uh-huh. Preacher, that's not funny. It's just the truth. I have to remember. I have to remember moments in a, in a baptistry. I have to remember through the lives that have been put back together. 
because of the people in this church working together and ministering to people. You have to remember why you're doing what you're doing. Husband, wife, you have to remember why, why you got married in the first place. You, you've got to look beyond the twos and the threes and beyond the teenage years of your children. You've got to remember why you got into it in the beginning. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, he gives the credit to the Lord. That's what you always do. We all returned to the wall, each to our own work. From that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, and bows and armor. Boom! How about that for work clothes? The officers posted themselves behind the people of Judah. They're directing things. Now everybody's just not doing whatever they want. We've got a plan. We've got a vision. We've got something we're working on together. And now we've got project coordinators. We've got other leaders back here that are helping direct and guide things. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of, uh, each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet, he stayed right here with me in case I needed to be talking to the people. I love this right here because Nehemiah was not afraid to fight. He was not afraid to fight for something as important as rebuilding the city walls and the gates around Jerusalem. Listen, I'm probably way more conservative than you think, but I probably also have some liberal ideas that might surprise you about things. I say that to, preference, uh, to preface what I'm about to say. BPC if you want to, that's up to you. But the problem with taking that to extremes is we've become a people, not, not just in the church, but in our country, we've become a people that's afraid to fight for what's, what's important. We're, we're afraid to fight for what is right. We're, we're afraid to stand up to the evils of this world Thank God the generations today were not the generations of the 1930s, 40s, and 50s when we faced the Nazis and the Japanese problems in the world. Some things have to be stood up for. Some things are worth fighting for. Your family is worth fighting for. It's worth fighting you if you have to fight you to fight for your family. Some things are worth fighting for. Listen, I think I'm a nice guy. I mean, I sound like it right now. But I'll fight you over the vision of the church. You can't have that. The Lord gave us a vision here. You, you can't come in and change that. You can come help, be a part of it. We need you to be involved in it, pushing with us, pulling with us. But that doesn't necessarily mean you can come in and say, hey, at my old church, we did it this way. Or my old pastor was like that. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and spread out. 
We're widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever or whenever or wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn till the stars came out. At that time, I also said to the people, have every man and his helper stay inside Jerusalem at night so they can serve us as guards by night and workers by day. Also to keep them from running away at night when they got scared. People were frustrated because they felt like they were doing it alone. So he got them all together so they could see they were part of a team. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off our clothes. Each had his weapon even when he went for water. That means even in the morning when he went out to relieve himself. We were ready to fight any time, day or night to rebuild the wall. We were determined. But along the way, there were some things that discouraged them and made them want to quit. There are three of them. They're the same three things that make us want to quit on the important things we're doing in life. They were tired. They were tired. When we're tired, that's when we're the closest of any other time to quitting on the things that are important. When we're fatigued, Vince Lombardi said fatigue makes cowards of us all. And that's the truth. When you're tired, you're ready to quit. When you're tired, you're, you're ready to quit on the boundaries, the safe boundaries that you have in your life. And you're susceptible, more vulnerable than ever, to temptation. They were afraid. They had enemies. Not just enemies that were picking on them. Not only enemies that wanted to stop them. But enemies that wanted to kill them. So they were afraid. Fear of the unknown future will cause you to stop dead in your tracks. It'll cause you to quit on doing something that's great that God has given you to do. And then they were frustrated. They were frustrated about all of that rubble, all the the building materials. They, They were frustrated because of how much further they had to go they're only halfway finished. They, they got the, the, the rest of the, the second half to go. They want to quit. So what did Nehemiah do? He reorganized the work and the workers. If you're not going to quit, if you're going to be a, a non-quitter, you're going to have to reorder some things in your life. You're going to have to reorganize. And this is even harder than organizing a garage. If you're too tired, you got to figure out the rest. Most of us are too tired because we don't honor God and take a Sabbath. One day a week, one 24-hour period where you stop from your regular labors and you go into the house of the Lord with you and your family, you and with whoever. If you don't have a family, it's you going in with a family. You worship the Lord. You refocus your life. you got to reorganize. You're afraid. You're living in fear. You need to reorganize. You need to stop doing life on your own and start doing it with other people. It takes a team. Yesterday, my, my parents and, and, uh, and my family, we went to the Billy Graham Library. One of the rooms that you go, in there, uh, go into early on is a, a room where it has all of the people who have been a part of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association through the years. And what they want to communicate to you right up front is that if you 
think about Billy Graham and you just think about one man in his pulpit up there preaching to thousands, even millions, you're wrong because there were hundreds and thousands of other people behind the scenes making it all happen. Billy Graham was one of the people who was a part of the team. There was a team of people. You need a team of people. Think about That's how Nehemiah reorganized them. He got them together so that they saw that they weren't just working on their little part of their life, their little part of their wall all their own. Now they're reminded they're a team when they're all working together. And they were frustrated. Got so far to go. Got all this debris. So they started cleaning up. You just need to throw some things out of your life. You need to get rid of some things. You need to rethink the websites that you're going to. You need to rethink some of the people that you spend a lot of time with, like Eagles fans. So about three years ago, I realized I was frustrated as a leader. I was frustrated with me, frustrated with most of the people around me, frustrated with the church, and trying to figure out what, what's going on. And I realized that some things needed to be reorganized in my life and in the church. So we went to work on that. Rocky River is a, is a staff-led, a pastor-led church. The pastors on our staff, we, we're, the, we're the main leaders. But I also saw that we need other people leading. That there are other people in our church that have leadership gifts and abilities. We need to get other people involved. We already had a trustee board, so I asked the trustees to work with us as a leadership team. We call it a lead team. So it's our staff, it's our trustees, it's our preschool director and co-director. We get together once a month for a same-page meeting. We look at different directives of the church. We look at all the numbers, attendance. I mean, every number you can imagine. Donnie Eisenhower is like, I don't know where he comes up with numbers, but we evaluate everything. We, we look at things that we've done recently, things that we want to do in the future. We look to, at those things as a group. One of the best things that we've done as a part of our reorganizing is we've put together a stewardship team. And so for a year and a half, that stewardship team has helped us look at our budgeting process, think through some better ways of doing some things, new processes. We have a stewardship team that's doing the budget. It, it used to be me and our accountant and Donnie figuring out the budget. And now we have a whole team of people that are figuring that out. My part in the budget this year to figure out is about this big. And there's a whole team of people that manage that and look after that and speak into those numbers. And we have more reorganizing to do. We're restructuring some of our teams. We're adding some teams. We're no longer going to look at our volunteers as how many can we get by with. We want to know how many people can we get involved. You know why that's important? That's important because unless you have a relationship and a responsibility here, it'll always be my church or their church, not your church. I don't want it to be my church. It's not my church. I don't own anything here. The only stuff I own is most of the stuff in my office and some of the stuff out here in the storage building. But you own the rest of it. I want it to be your church. If it's not, you'll leave. 
you'll leave. And as a part of the, the reorganizing of things, there are some things that have to be upgraded. And so for weeks and weeks now, me and Adam and Donnie have been uh, looking at things in the church that need to be upgraded. We've bounced it off the lead team. We've talked to trustees about it, stewardship team, in different, different ways, different venues. And there are some important things that just have to be upgraded. From one end of the building to the other, where it's painting walls, flooring, sound proofing in here, things like that. It's about $35,000 worth of stuff. So our Christmas offering through December and January is going to be called the next level offering where we want to give, collect $35,000 or more so that we can make these changes. But I started talking to, to the guys as well and these other teams and I don't think we can wait for some of it until after the first of the year. There are some things that we need right now, like some safety and security things. We have a preschool that has 60 kids in it plus a staff. 60 kids here every day plus their teachers. We need some cameras. We need some security cameras, some of them inside, some of them outside. We've been talking about it for Several years now, it's time to buy those. We're at the point where that just needs to happen. We've got some windows that need to be tinted for security reasons. A few weeks ago, we had a lady in our church in the first service. She had a, a heart episode. And it turns out it wasn't a heart. It, it, was some, it was some other things. But we need a defibrillator here. They're not required. You don't have to have one, but we need one. We have nurses here that know how to work them. We have EMTs that are here. We need a defibrillator this week. We need to have one for next Sunday. That's in my thinking. But we're having a lot of problems in this room. Um, when we built this building, uh, we had plans. To, we, we were going to spend about $30,000 on lights and sound. But the city of Concord needed a pipe to be upfitted. So we upgraded a pipe for about $60,000, which took our 30 plus another 30 we didn't have. So when we came into this building, we used the system that we'd been using as a portable church for a lot of years. Some of these speakers on the front are 18 years old. And others of them are like 12 years old. And we can limp by with it for a while, but every Sunday morning, just about every Sunday morning, am I exaggerating, Adam? Nearly every Sunday morning, when we come in here, we have all kinds of problems with the sound. It, it's just been road hard. It, it's been in and out. It's been set up and torn down so often. It's just not dependable. At this moment, in this part of the talk, at the previous service, the sound system started squealing. And it would not stop. They had to, Eric and, um, and Adam and Diego, they had to cut everything off. So I gave the invitation with no microphone. We didn't do that, I promise. It just happened, and I think it was the Lord. Well, here's, here's the thing I told you earlier. We don't have to have all that money up front. But we need the safety and security stuff right now. That needs to be first. But to redo the sound and lights in here with us doing it, us buying the equipment, we've been researching it. We know what it costs. We know what it takes. 
um, the security and the sound, it's around $17,000. And we have a lot of momentum as a church. I don't want to wait until after January because literally we finished the last service with no sound. We're going to come in here one morning and it's all going to be out. We can't afford that. We want to keep the momentum going. So instead of waiting, I'm asking you to give $17,000. Above and beyond our normal tithes and offerings. I know everybody can't do that, but some people can. A lot of people can. I think all of us could give something. Maybe there's somebody in here you could give 17000 And we'll just sing hallelujah and get on Amazon. But if we had 17 people that gave 1000 that would do it too. But whatever you can give. And you can give today. You can give with a check. Just on the memo of the check, write next level offering. If you're not prepared to give now, you can give on our website, rockyriverchurch.com. And we have it set up. There's its, its own fund, next level. We need to go to the next level. And, and I'm asking you to help us to go there. I'm asking you to make a sacrificial giving to that today. If you would, I'd appreciate it. And we'll keep this momentum going. We'll keep it going. But here's the way I want to end. If some of you here today, you are, you're tired and you're afraid and you're frustrated with your life. It's not just your marriage. It's not, it's not something else. It's, it's you. It's your life. You're tired of, of living life the way you're living it because you know something's broke. It's, it's just not right. That's because you're the one leading it. Or you're afraid, you're afraid of the future. The future here and the future in eternity. Because you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And you have good reason to be afraid. Your, your future's uncertain. And then some of you are frustrated. Because the rubble in your life, it just piles up. And it's full of broken pieces of you. Because you're not whole, you're not complete. And without Jesus in your life, you won't be. So I don't want you to walk out of here today without reorganizing your life and putting Jesus in charge. So if you've never trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to pray this prayer with me right now. Just with every head bowed and every eye closed. You don't have to say this out loud. You can say it in your heart and in your mind. Our God is the God who searches hearts and minds and he will hear you when you say, Jesus, I'm tired of living my own way. I'm tired of calling the shots. I'm not doing a good job of managing my life. I'm afraid of what the future holds and I'm frustrated. So I want to reorganize my life today and that will begin with you being in charge. So I confess to you today that I'm a sinner. I ask you to forgive me of my sins. Come into my heart and my life to be my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with the power of your Spirit so that every day from now until eternity, I'll have the courage that it takes to follow you as my Lord and Savior. And now just say, Jesus, thank you for loving me. 
and saving me. It's in your great name that we pray. And those who agreed said, Amen.